This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. It's a year to go until Britain sort of leaves the EU. March the 29th, 2019 is the official exit date after we triggered Article 50 in March last year. So what is going to happen over the next year and what have been the highlights so far? Joining me on the panel this week, Times columnist Alice Thompson who wrote recently in The Times as a former Remain supporter. She was trying to be positive about Brexit. And our two in-house Brexit experts, Oliver Wright and Henry Zeffman, who, amongst other things, produce the excellent Times Brexit briefing every Thursday, which happens to coincide perfectly with the year to go uh, until we officially leave. So let's begin. Let's be positive. Let's talk about our highlights of Brexit so far. Let's start with you, Ollie. What's what's particularly tickled your fancy? I'm not sure this is a highlight, um, but I can't look beyond... The outrage over the contract to print the new British blue passport uh, going to a foreign company. I mean, we've been told time and time again that the one brilliant thing about Brexit is that it will allow us to be a buccaneering, free-trading nation. Um, Therefore, it is a little ironic that when we, as a buccaneering, free-trading nation hand the contract to a slightly cheaper company company which happens to be based abroad, we suddenly cry protectionism. We have to choose. Either we want to be a buccaneering free trading country or we want to be little England protectionist. And one of the really striking things with this story is the split in the sort of two Brexit camps. You've got the Daily Mail running a petition, an online petition, to try and get this decision reversed. And and the Labour Party, unusually, lining up with the Daily Mail. You don't often see that. No. And yet on the other side, you've got the Sun saying this is what Brexit was supposed to be all about. And and the money that's being saved, because bluntly the the French company worked out cheaper than the British one, the money that was that can be saved can be spent on doctors think, and nurses. And yeah, that's I think it. someone pointed out that for all the employees who could be at risk of redundancy from this decision, you could give them each a million pounds and still be £50 million better off. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you actually have to hand it to the Sun. At least they're consistent. You know, they've, they've accepted that. I don't think the same can be said of the Mail um, or indeed the Telegraph, who've also been fully beyond the out- behind high outrage of all this. Um, but, you know, it's true that if you want to be a free trading nation, that means that foreign companies can, with contracts, with the British state. And and just imagine the response if every other EU country that Delarue, the British company, currently produces uh, passports for, suddenly was told, well, we're going to pull out our contracts and keep it within the EU. There'd be absolute outrage yeah. uh, the other way around. So that's, um, that's just business. 
Alice, what's been your highlight of Brexit so far? I think mine has to be the sick bucket. I mean, <laughs> in the end, it, David Davis's sick bucket on Andrew Marr. It's still pretty much what we all feel, don't we? There's that sort of slight sick mailing feeling, making feeling every few really days now, sometimes hours, when you think, oh my God, is this actually going to work? And I think that's either a Brexit view or a main view. I don't think anyone could be totally relaxed about what was going to happen. I must admit, I was quite surprised year. that um, even David Davis is sick of talking about Brexit <laughs> and now has to take a bucket with him. Um, on the but it's also combined with fish, isn't it? So there's a lot of fishiness. I all of these last two years has been all about fish. So you're either on a trawler with fish or you're kissing a fish like Boris or fish seem to pop up the whole time so it's that sort of slightly rotting smell the whole way through that maybe it's making everyone feel ill it was quite striking that, so that the the um fish stunt last week uh with nigel farage on the on the boat going up the thames the contrast with of that with the 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 brexit flotilla that we saw just yes. before the referendum it sort of told you what had happened you know it was only nigel farage the tories wouldn't get literally wouldn't get on the boat with him it was just nigel farage in a bucket of stinking fish and it didn't have quite the same impact uh, so if nothing else maybe we you know the, the cult of Nigel Farage is on the way oh, oh and now I've got Jacob Rees-Mogg I think that's why they've just changed really haven't they We've got but he wouldn't get on and throw the mm. fish yes well I think he knew he's wearing a smart suit too <laughs> Henry what's been your highlight of Brexit so far uh, my my highlight uh, takes us back to the heady days of December so it's not something that happened in the last <laughs> week which is why that's just gone for so far three whole months and this was the European Council summit in December where the EU's remaining 27 leaders effectively signed off on phase one and agreed to move on to start talking about trade. And at the summit uh, dinner where the EU leaders agreed to that, they gave Theresa May uh, a round of applause and a standing ovation. Uh, and this reports of this started to filter out uh, through the European press late that evening. And Theresa May's closest advisers in Downing Street were absolutely stunned because she hadn't thought to mention to them uh, <laughs> the sort of one bit of nice... Uh, niceness from uh, her fellow EU leaders that she'd received uh, in quite a while. I think, I think you're right. The trees, mate. If there's one thing she's not good at, it's spinning her own her own successes. And, and certainly, what we've seen for the early part of this Brexit process is the EU's been much better at, at that. You know, and you've had maybe because they've got a better cast of characters, but Michelle Barnier and Donald Tusk. And but there's a counterfactual to that, which is that this has been a deliberate British strategy that the EU have to win the propaganda battle. And if we let the EU win the propaganda battle, the substance of the agreement will be more favourable to the UK. But we do get more and more nervous about that, don't we? I mean, we do. <laughs> whether or not we're right about that. I mean, I think, I think it, we, we have to sort of stop and say, this is just the PR battle, isn't it? We're not actually losing this But one. I think it is true, if you look at something like the financial settlement that we eventually struck with them, that that was much less bad than some of the commission side certainly what they were demanding when they when they went into this process they changed quite a lot we just didn't flag up where they changed for example they were demanding um at the outset a lump sum to cover pensions going into the future now as it turns out we'll pay the pension liabilities as they fall due every single year now if we paid it as a lump sum because of the way in which it's calculated at the moment, we would have paid a far larger amount than we probably will over the next 40 years. But that was something, a small thing granted, that we won. So I think that... Except if people have been paying attention to the public statements, we actually had Boris Johnson saying, we're not going to pay a penny, go whistle. Uh, and then they rolled over and it was £50 billion. £50 billion. So yeah, I'm, it, I've, got this, I've got this theory that the... Of all the people who should get an award for services to Brexit, it's actually the Financial Times. 
<laughs> when they wrote um, eight months or so ago that Britain was going to have to pay a hundred million, hundred billion pound Brexit bill, it was the perfect thing for the government because when the bill actually came in at thirty-nine million, which was billion, which is what everyone always said it was going to come in at, roughly they were speaking. Um, the government could announce a great victory when in actual fact not a huge yeah, The exaggerators on either side have been a big mistake, I think. That's the problem, isn't it? Either side exaggerating too much. So the same, with, if you go right back years ago now, two whole years ago, George Osborne was, you know, his saying mm -hmm. doom, gloom, the country's going to you know, be totally sort of, you know, it'll crack, that everything's going to be a disaster. It didn't happen immediately, so everyone was sort of given hope. So that's the problem, is you can't really exaggerate too much in this. Well, I was just going to um, touch on, my, I think my highlight generally has been Theresa May's um, big set piece speeches because there was the there was the mansion house one there was um, Florence, Florence where she went all the way to Florence and then gave her speech in front of a grey uh, curtain that they'd essentially bought from Britain. Um, they Bob did the, the builder. Um, <laughs> they did Bob, Bob the builder. When she put on her hard hat. Oh, when she put on a hard hat, of course. And in fact, she did the same thing when she did a speech on the environment and she went to a wetland centre and just mm -hmm. did it in front of a photo of uh, the late dish. It was a slightly separate point. But this sort of sense of Theresa May trying to control the process with big set pieces, and these become sort of set texts for the uh, entire Brexit process, that any questions are always referred back to the most recent um, big speech. And, of course, the most recent one was at Mansion House, but was supposed to have been in Newcastle, but was scuppered by the snow. I mean, it's worth noting that's definitely how Downing Street see them, as the sort of set texts, as you say. I remember in advance of the Florence speech, uh, one of the Prime Minister's advisers telling me, yes, this is going to be one of the, you know, big, big linchpins of our Brexit policy, up alongside the Lancaster House speech and what they call the Dear Donald letter, which was the letter in which she triggered Article 50, um, a year ago. I actually think the criticism of Theresa May for governing by set-piece speech uh, might might be fair on a sort of PR level, but I think in, in substantive terms, I don't think you can really criticise uh, any of those three major speeches. She has, in all of them, made genuine policy decisions. They've always answered quite a lot of the big questions that have been pending in advance. So, I mean, Lancaster House is the most obvious of those. Uh, she went in, into that speech with very few people having a particularly good idea of what the government's Brexit strategy was uh, beyond the sloganeering of Brexit means Brexit and, and so on. And then she announced that Britain was going to leave the single market and effectively leave the customs union. That was a big deal. I mean, it was such a big deal that that is basically still the sort of terrain on which uh, continuity Remainers are trying to fight her now. Uh, so I don't think you can complain, apart from about the backdrops and perhaps that it might not be particularly appropriate for 2018 politics. And, uh, in fact, interestingly, if you compare it to the way that David Cameron went about his renegotiation with Brussels, every week we had stories in the papers about ideas being floated and one downstream source saying this, that and the other. But it ended up, that every time he then put those ideas to Brussels they were completely knocked back so actually the idea of saying we're not going to say anything officially until we're ready to say something official maybe that that will work out in the end yeah and I think there's merit in in you know swamping major policy changes in amongst a 45 minute 7,000 word speech I mean it, it does give the EU something meaty that they have to go away and read and then take a while to come back with whereas the sort of previous approach of constant kite flying makes it hard to kind of work out which kites are uh, deliberate constant kite, kite flying should be the title yes. of David Cameron's memoirs I, was, I suspect it won't be but that's it's not, it's not a bad uh, it's not a bad title um, and just uh, looking at where we are now before we sort of start looking ahead do, do we think that we are in a better place than we expected a year ago when the letter was triggered are we roughly where we should be Ollie? 
Um, in some senses, yes. In some senses, no, which is a bit of an equivocating answer. <laughs> um, we are in a better place in that we have substantially settled the question of money, which was always going to be a huge problem, and that was forced on us by the EU. Uh, we have substantially settled the question of citizens' rights, which was also um, a big obstacle, and the divorce bill in general, which um, we have accepted, and so have the, the Conservative Brexiteers. We are in a much worse place than we thought we were going to be in relation to Northern Ireland, because I think when you go back to when she triggered Article 50, no one thought that Northern Ireland would play such a central and pivotal role in this whole process. Process, and that is very, very far from being resolved. Alice? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember just during the whole Brexit referendum, when the question of Northern Ireland came up, no one was interested. And I was sent off there to look at it. And actually, funny, it was the police who you think would be natural Brexiteers in some ways, um, who were the ones that kept coming back to Northern Ireland saying, God, you've forgotten this whole area. And we were like, no, Scotland, Scotland. And Scotland was the big issue in much more of a way about the union. And then I was sent off to Gibraltar and everyone was going, oh, that's completely irrelevant. But actually, you could see Gibraltar <laughs> was going to become an issue in some ways. But we, it, it was a story. We only wanted a certain story. We weren't really prepared to deviate, were we, at that stage? It was just one Brexit story that we were all following, I think, much more, and that the public wanted to follow. And I think, I think it's difficult still with Northern Ireland to get any traction on it, actually, and to, to kind of get people involved in it in that way. I think that you're right. It's the weirdness of it all, so that actually... Areas like DEFRA with Michael Gove have done very well since Brexit and have looked as if they're very forward-thinking and very optimistic, whereas areas like the Foreign Office and Boris Johnson haven't done very well at all, I think. So it's odd who, who's made the most of it, who's been actually sort of at the forefront. It's, it's, I mean, there are a lot of disruptors involved with Brexit, but they're not many innovators. And I think actually probably Boris was a disruptor, not an innovator. And I'd say that Michael Gove actually is an innovator, probably. Is. is that just the sort of politicians that they are? That you could Because, you know, Michael Gove basically did the same thing at education. Mm. He did the same thing uh, at justice. And actually, he's done the thing that no Tory has ever really managed to do at DEFRA before, which is turn it into the very Tory government department yeah. that it should have been. It's hunting, shooting, fishing, mm. farmers... Uh, and the countryside, and yet it's always been a slightly dry, sort of techie. And also, you can't say, department. oh, that's just because of Brexit, because actually, Andrew Ledson did it, yeah. and nothing happened under her. I mean, she was completely hopeless at it. And, you know, when he was given it, he can't have thought, fantastic, you know, brilliant. He doesn't even own him. Mean, I've been in the countryside with him. He was always fairly hopeless in the countryside. He doesn't really have a clue what to do in the countryside. So it is rather extraordinary that he hasn't embraced it as such. Um, but is, then, that, is that just his nature as a politician, because he embraces whatever it is that he's doing? Yes, and I think he wants to make it succeed in a certain way. That he, It's actually also an intellectual argument for him. Mm. He's determined that Brexit's going to succeed, so he's taken the one area that he can actually influence. Whereas I think Boris Johnson's done a very different sort of... His has been very different. That he'll take something like the bus pledge on the NHS, and he's trying to prove that's right. He's looking backwards the whole time, whereas I think Michael Gove's got the point. They're going to have to look forwards and try and say, this is what you're going to achieve now. And also, it sort of feels like it's the wrong way around. Theresa May gave Boris Johnson the biggest job yes. she could, and he hasn't made that much yeah. of it. And actually, giving someone DEFRA used to be the sort of... It's a killer job. Go and sit in the corner and, you know, you can get shouted at by yeah. the NFU once a year type job, uh, where, which went to either people on the way up or on the way out. And yet and he's, the, yeah. he's turned it into this... And the farmers were meant to be shafted, really, by... I mean, even the NFU told the farmers, their own union told them not to vote for Brexit because it was going to be a disaster. Whereas, actually, they might do quite well out of all this in the end unlike quite a lot of the other groups. So it's it's quite interesting that he's actually managed to take a department and run with it like that. OK, so in a sec, we'll take a look at what we think might happen over the next 12 months. We'll bring in Bruno Waterfield as well, the Times-Brussels correspondent. We'll be back after this short break. Mm-hmm. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. I'm joined by Oliver Wright, Alice Thompson and Henry Zeffman. And we're joined on the line by the Times Brussels correspondent, uh, Bruno Waterfield. Can I start by asking what your highlight of Brexit so far has been? Yeah, I mean, Brexit has been marked by a real sort of sense of humour failure, I think, across the entire uh, political class and I think real proof of that was last May when Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission uh, President who, who, who has great sense of humour it's sardonic, it's abrasive um, and he joked as he was beginning his speech, he always has a joke in a, in, in a different language, he joked that slowly but surely English is losing importance um, it losing importance in, in, in Europe. It was absolutely clearly a joke. Um, people laughed. Um, he laughed. Um, but in Britain, people completely lost their sense of humour. <laughs> the great, vaunted British sense of humour completely disappeared. And it was no longer a joke, of course. It was a jibe. And I think that actually um, one of the things that's been very, very telling um, about the Brexit negotiations is, is, is a complete sense of humour failure, probably on both sides, but particularly on the British side. It's interesting what you say about Juncker, because the impression in the UK is he's a sort of slightly sinister figure, constantly plotting against Britain, but actually, is he just having a laugh all the time? I think sometimes he is. I mean, he joked, he, he joked the other day, he was asked about, um, a few weeks ago, he was asked uh, about whether he knew what Theresa May had decided when she had a sort of Chequers cabinet meeting on the future um, of, of Brexit. And he said, no, of course not. I'm not a British Prime Minister. It would be good for Britain if I was um, but I'm not. That's his idea of a joke. Um, and it's said in a sort of growling, it's said in a sort of growling, uh, sort of curmudgeonly kind of style. But we, we, we sort of decided that Juncker is sinister. Um, so we, we, we take great humbrage um, at everything um, that he says, which is a bit of a pity because I, I, I've always had a sneaking suspicion that Jean-Claude Juncker, who, who smokes, who drinks uh, heavily, is always uh, making these sort of sardonic jokes that upset people. I mean, basically, he could be a real sort of folk, folk hero um, <laughs> in Britain. But for, for, for some reason, we've decided, we've decided he's, he's, he's a bad lot. Um, I suspect your campaign to turn Jean-Claude Juncker into a British folk hero may, that may well um, have foundered now. Um, so looking ahead, what's the, what, what sort of... Obviously, we had the summit in uh, Brussels last week where everything seemed to go according to plan, both in terms of signing off on the transition deal and Theresa May got some uh, strong backing on Britain's reaction to Russia. What is the current attitude to, towards Britain in Brussels at the moment? I think on, in terms of, of, of Brexit um, 
negotiations, everyone here has been astonished because Britain has been unable to put um, the EU uh, under any uh, pressure, um, given that disastrous election result, which is one of the big moments uh, last year, for, for both in terms of British politics, but also European uh, politics. The government hasn't really um, been able to put pressure on the uh, European side. It has showed in terms of some of the things that Theresa May has had to swallow um, in the uh, negotiations at the moment, everyone's very much in a in a holding operation. I'm afraid we're 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 well entrenched in EU procedure. It's not the March summit. It's then the June summit. It'll, I'm sure in June it will not be the June summit. It will be the October summit, which means the December summit. The problem with Article 50 and the Article 50 procedure is it is actually time limited. So once we start getting to the end of this year, um, we basically run out of time. So the old European uh, statecraft of kicking the can down the road, something that Britain has been good at as well um, over the last year. Simply, they simply run out of time. Ollie, do you get the sense that the um, officials and ministers in the UK are aware of this? That the, the, the clock is constantly ticking. Yeah, I think so. I and mean, that was one of the the primary reasons and the need to get a transition deal because it reduces the amount of stuff you have to do before Britain formally leaves. So we can have what they're now expecting to be a political declaration, which, as Bruno says, is more likely to be December than October. But that will be sort of 20, 30 pages long. It will not be a fully-fledged trade de deal or trade treaty, however you put it. Um, it will outline the main points that will then turn into that at a future stage. But that was why it was so absolutely crucial, particularly from a UK perspective, to get the transition deal just to buy them so much uh, a bit more time. It's not an implementation phase, despite what the government says. It is a transition. It's a buying of time. I think I think one point that's really crucial uh, in the sort of ticking clock uh, is the legislative challenge that the government faces uh, in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. So we had the sort of flurry of excitement over the withdrawal bill, formerly known as the repeal bill, even more formally known as the great repeal bill, uh, <laughs> which got through the House of Commons, albeit partially amended just before Christmas. It's still in the House of Lords. They haven't voted on it yet. They will pass some amendments, which means that it will come back to the Commons and require either unamending or, or matching versions to go forward for royal assent. But that's just the start of it. Uh, later this year, we're going to have the Customs and Trade Bills. Uh, amendments have already been tabled to both of those, which require... Uh, the government to seek staying in a form of customs union with the EU, which is not the government's official line. Now, those amendments have sufficient Tory signatories to them that it is very hard to see how they don't pass. Now, what the government will do as and when they do pass is a total mystery. They're certainly not relaxed about it, uh, but the sort of constitutional implications of if they try to uh, ignore it or suggest that those, the wording of those amendments is consistent with government policy would be quite complicated. But apart from anything else, this is all an aperitif uh, to the great uh, Brexit main course, which will be the vote on the actual deal that Theresa May comes back with probably towards the end of this year, if not early next year. Now, there's actually going to be several votes. There's a straight up and down vote on whether uh, each House of Parliament approves the deal, the withdrawal treaty. But then after that, there's a piece of primary legislation putting that into legal action, which has to be passed before the 29th of March 2019. Otherwise, we're in a legal morass. And yet it's also amendable. And as we've seen with the withdrawal bill, as we will see with the customs and trade bills, there is a majority in the House of Commons and very much a majority in the House of Lords, which is willing to 
mess around, even if it's only tinkering, even if it's not the kind of mess that some former Remainers would like them to make, mess around with what the government has negotiated. And, and the implications of what happens if they decide to take a stand on the withdrawal agreement are totally unknowable, but they could well threaten to unravel everything that Theresa May has done for the last two years. Alice, one of the, the striking things is still the, the sort of the cottage industry is bigger than the cottage industry of, of trying to stop Brexit. You know, how can Brexit be stopped is still being constantly Googled. You, you've got your Nick Cleggs and your Tony Blairs, whatever, out there still hoping to find a way of doing it. Do you think that's got legs? We did an interview with Nick Clegg, Rachel Sylvester and I at the weekend. And if you talk to Nick Clegg or John Major or Tony Blair and Ken Clark, and they are also talking to each other quite a lot. And you can see that. You can see it when you interview one of them. They reflect what the other one's saying. And they've obviously spent quite a lot of time. They can get hold of Ken Clark on the phone, which is rarely he seems to be involved too. Um, but they are all involved and they are still quite optimistic that they can change this in some way, that something will happen. There will be an event that... Labour will split. Some there'll be some something major that will happen that will change it. But they they can't actually say what it will be because they know that unless something happens, it's almost inconceivable. And all the talk of the second referendum, as we were just saying now, that the bizarre thing is that so many people in the country already think Brexit has happened. They don't really want to go back. They don't want another so-called election almost on this. They, they think the whole thing's gone through. Where I am in Devon, on Exmoor, literally they, they think that happened two years ago. We're well, now on to the next. You know, on to the next deal, whether or not you have your scone with cream on the top of the jam. I mean, it's not. <laughs> That's a whole new podcast, Adam, much more, much more it's... contentious. Is Brussels and the sort of the institutions given up on the idea that, that this might not happen? There was a lot of talk about, oh, the doors always open and it was Britain's decision, not ours. Is, have people moved on from that now? Oh, they haven't, to put it uh, simply. And, 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 and people like Nick Clegg, Tony Blair, they've, they've sort of worn the carpet shiny going through the door of, of Juncker, Barnier, uh, Donald Tusk and all those sorts uh, of people and if you look at the new negotiating guidelines that the eu leaders agreed last friday there's something that's called here the evolution clause that effectively holds the door open for a change in the eu strategy if if the prime minister changes her mind or or, or, or really if she loses some of these uh, parliamentary debates so the the new text um, notes that quote the approach current eu approach reflects the levels of rights and obligations compatible with the positions stated by the UK. If these positions were to evolve, the union will be prepared to reconsider um, its, its offer. So there's, there's already an outstanding invitation from the EU side to, to MPs, to remain MPs, to essentially sabotage um, the government's um, red lines. It's also very clear that there is a consensus among EU leaders, prime ministers and heads of state that should should Theresa May lose a vote on the withdrawal agreement, then they would extend um, the uh, Article 50 period. So they could extend uh, the period beyond uh, the 29th of March uh, 2019 for not more than two years, seems to be the legal, the legal thinking um, here. So they do have um, options, and I think a lot of them, a lot of people here believe that the government's red lines will change and they'll change because of dynamics within the parliament okay just before we let you go bruno what what, what should we be looking out for or, or even who should we be looking out for well who are the sort of key players and the or the key rows that will be playing out over the next 12 months i think the 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 really important round it hasn't just been because of the the, the dup and arlene foster putting a gun to theresa may's head uh, last um, December. The real issue is Northern Ireland. Why Northern Ireland? Because that issue, that issue of customs union, that issue of alignment with single market rules is a wedge 
um, that's being driven into a weak government by um, the EU side allowing, you know, allowing Dublin to lead on it. So watch that issue and watch how the government responds because that could be uh, the terrain for, for either a great negotiating triumph or, or depending on your outlook, a great surrender. Bruno, thanks so much for that. It's good to speak to you. We've let Bruno go, but I'm not going to let the other three go without doing a short a little Brexit quiz of what's um, happened in the last year or so. Most of them actually are quotes of uh, things of people have said but um let's start you just shout out the answers we're not keeping score and we won't tell yeah, anyone how how uh, how you do who briefly suggested britain should show spain what kind of people we are over gibraltar in the shortest war of recent times michael howard michael howard um they were, they were straightforward more straightforward days those um uh, which prominent Brexiteer appeared in front of an election poster which could be cropped to real to read hell for your family during the election campaign I think that was Mr. Sickbucket himself. It was indeed. It was David Davis. I saw somebody suggesting was uh, the picture of David Davis with his Sickbucket actually a revelation of who Lord Buckethead was, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was uh, was an excellent um, uh, observation. Who was a Tory MP who asked Boris Johnson, "Will you make it clear to you that if they want a penny piece more, then they can go whistle?" Ooh, Peter Bone. Very close, Philip Hollowbow. It was the other one. Um, what did uh, what did Jeremy Corbyn give Michelle Barnier during a visit to Brussels in July last year? At the risk of of being the the podcast SWAT, um, I think it was an Arsenal shirt. It was an Arsenal Barnier shirt. Wow. Very, good. very good, very good. Okay, we'll do some quotes now. Who said, "I'm not hearing any whistling, just a clock ticking"? It was in response to the "Go Whistle" comment. It was Michelle Barnier. It was it? Michelle Barnier. Very good. Um, uh, who <laughs> who said you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one? Nick Clegg. No, d- close. Donald Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> Interchangeable. Who said I feel sometimes I'm sitting along with colleagues who are like jihadis in their support for hard Brexit? That was the then backbench MP for Devizes, Claire Perry, who now sits around the cabinet table with uh, the jihadis. It's amazing what the offer of a, of a top job will, um, will do. Who said it's up to us now in the traditional non-threatening, genial and self-deprecating way of the British to let that lion roar? No idea. Uh, I was in the hall for this. It was, it was, it was it Boris, Boris Johnson. Was Boris, Boris yeah. Johnson's yeah. famous self-deprecating characteristics of mm. lions. While we're on, we're on the subject, how many words were there in Boris Johnson's <laughs> ten-point vision for Brexit in the Telegraph, which nearly got him the sack last... September. Give or take 8,000. 4,290. And finally, uh, which uh, which senior politician said, the worst thing about having a donkey is what to do when they die? <laughs> I have no idea. It was Keir Starmer, Labour's shadow Brexit secretary, with his most interesting contribution to the debate <laughs> all so. year. Uh, well, well done. I wasn't keeping schools, so um, well done, everybody. I was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. As ever, if you want to sign up to uh, the Times Brexit briefing that Ollie and Henry do every Thursday, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bulletins. And you can sign up to my morning email, which I do every day rather than just once a week. You go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device. And if you've got any questions about Brexit or anything else, frankly, do get in touch. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. But for now, from Ollie Wright, Alice Thompson, Henry Zeffman and Bruno Waterfield in Brussels. And for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 
thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.